Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. And Robin Hood is over. So it's time to talk. We're talking about Robin Hood 1922. This is the Douglas Fairbanks classic, classic film that in many ways introduces us uh, to so much of the lore of Robin Hood. Uh, and and to this character uh, in, in a way that is sort of cemented throughout movie history. Um, and it kicks off for you and I a, I would like to say, substantial series of Robin Hood movies over the years. And I mean, a lot of years, nearly 100 years will be encapsulated on this show in terms of talking about Robin Hood. And 
I'm I'm very excited about it, but I I'm not entirely sure why. Why are we doing this series again? <laughs> well, I I was trying to think about that. Like, what was it that led us to pick this particular property as something to talk about? And I don't know. We just started talking. I think it was when the new Robin Hood came out with Taron Edgerton and Jamie Foxx. And we said, you know, there are so many Robin Hood remakes and and versions of that story. It'd be interesting to look at some of them. And, you know, we just kind of started looking at them and we put together a list. Oh, this would be a fun one to talk about. That would be a fun one to talk about. And we built a list. It was like nine movies long. And then, of course, we were like, well, let's throw it to our, our Patreon supporters and let them pick. And so there are a few shifts on the list, but still, we're at nine films. And it's an opportunity to look at a property that is, I mean, it's a public domain property that has been out there for a very long time. I mean, the character Robin Hood has been around, you know, for since at least the uh, the 1400s, if not earlier than that. And in ballads and all this sort of stuff, and and the way that the story has changed over over the years has been a very interesting thing. And I think that that's largely what we wanted to look at here is what is it so that's so interesting about this character, much like King Arthur, another character that often gets interpreted over and over again in film. What is it about this character that is so indelible that people keep returning to the well to uh, to tell the uh, their own version of the story? Is it just the fact that it's public domain, so it doesn't cost anything to do it? Or is there more to this character that is drawing people in? So I think that's kind of what, what drew us in. Well, that's certainly what uh, drew me in to this film and what keeps me thinking about Robin Hood. I think you're right. I don't think it's just that we're all real, real cheap and we need those sweet, sweet public domain characters. <laughs> we're talking about Hollywood here, Pete. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think there is something that hits the sweet spot for us as human creatures uh, about this story of vengeance and uh, of embarrassing those who have done us wrong. And that is right in the center of Robin Hood. And we're going to talk all about that right after this. Hey, everybody. The next reel is brought to you by Audible. And they have a fantastic deal that works for you and for us. Get a load of this. If you sign up for a trial account at Audible for free at audibletrial.com slash the next reel, you're going to be able to search for any audiobook you want and download it for free and keep it forever. Any book you want. They have 200,000 titles to choose from for all of your digital devices. They have fantastic apps on Android and iPhone and your computer. It's just fantastic. Free book at audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Now, because we know you love movies, we want to give you something to chew on this week. We are talking about Robin Hood from 1922 with Douglas Fairbanks performing. And did you know, Pete, this is really interesting. Douglas Fairbanks actually, back in 1917, wrote his own self-help book. <laughs> did you know this? <laughs> there is something about that that feels so right. So right? right, and yet so very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he actually wrote a number of self-help books. Well, this week's book we're looking at is called Laugh and Live by Douglas Fairbanks from 1917. This is a 102-year-old book where Douglas Fairbanks talks about how to you know create a better life for yourself. And his what he says, his formula for happiness is humility, good humor, and particularly strenuous physical exercise. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I want to read this book now. I haven't read it, but let me tell you, knowing that it's on Audible, I am going to download it and check it out because it's only two hours and 41 minutes. It's a very quick listen, and I am sure it's going to be a fun one to check out. You know, you could download this or you could download Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, and you could uh, actually listen to this uh, 22 times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you really That's should check out books. Audible. Yeah. I, I tell you, I've been an, an Audible subscriber for more than 16 years. I've got hundreds and hundreds of books, and I adore the service. It's one of those that I just, I don't know what I'd do in the car without it. It's fantastic. Again, audibletrial.com slash the next reel. You'll be able to support this show and support the work that we're doing here. Thanks for your support.
I have to tell you, Andy, I think this was a really charming film. I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, I'm a little bit, um, I, I think, conditioned not to not to be wired for long, silent film experiences. Right. I, I just I don't see them very, uh, very often. They're not a regular part of my movie diet. So I was a little bit nervous about, um, you know, tracking with this one. And I'll tell you, I had a blast. It is much beefier on the backstory on integrating what Robin Hood is for us and what Robin Hood is sort of the, the you know, in, is to this story, getting a whole lot of uh, information about his, you know, pre character work it's his origin story and and uh, i didn't expect the movie to be quite as invested in origin story material uh as it was um it it felt very much like uh like a james cameron epic of 1922 right well i yeah and i wouldn't be surprised if that's how they went into it i mean certainly the budget you know it sounds like they they spent a lot on it so it sounds like they were in line with James Cameron-esque thinking, at least in 1922 terms. I I had a fun time with it, too. I don't think I ended up enjoying it quite as much as you did. I thought it was a pretty interesting look at the Robin Hood character and a pretty interesting uh, place to start because of how many kind of Robin Hood elements come from this. Yes, there was a 1912 version, which I couldn't find even just a clips of to look at, so I can't really compare. But this is the one that people always say, the Douglas Fairbanks version, really kind of kicked off a lot of those Robin Hood tropes. And so it was an interesting one to look at and to see what they're doing with the character and everything. Um, I felt like there were times... Uh, where they were trying to figure out what the tone was going to be of the film. Sometimes it felt like they were doing a very fun romp of a family film. Um, lots of fun, uh, s you know, schoolyard silliness, all that sort of stuff happening. But then sometimes it would get really serious and you'd have people getting stabbed in the tops of their heads. And you'd have like backs getting broken around column columns as as, uh, as there were people getting strangled. I mean, there were some like it would go from like really crazy nonsense to like some horrifyingly uh, violent death scenes. And I was like, there's an odd balance here. And I was like, is that just 1922? You know, lack of sensors and all that. They would just kind of throw it all in there. I don't know. So the tone was a little funky for me, but I still had fun with it. And I enjoyed I enjoyed the overall story, even if um, weirdly, I will say I enjoyed uh, the story of Robin Hood and kind of seeing how it evolved. But I kind of didn't like Douglas Fairbanks that much. And I feel I don't know if that's sacrilegious or not, but I feel like maybe it is a little bit. No, I, I totally get you. I, I had trouble if I had trouble connecting with anyone. It was it was with Robin Hood. Uh, I, I actually found that I liked him more as the Earl. Uh, before he took on the mantle of of Robin Hood than I did in the back half of the movie. I thought the the whole story about how, you know, he is the, the hand of Richard and, um, you know, is the, you know, he's this jousting champion. I mean, he's a nobleman and he goes off on the Crusades, which, you know, the long arc of history uh, does not remember kindly the Crusades. And it is treated here like a, uh, you know, like a noble journey for him. Uh, dare I say a crusade and uh and and that he comes back to to take on that mantle I think was uh, uh it, it was a much more interesting transformation than I ever would have expected in a film like this and then it kind of comes off the rails they it, we get a lot of the really fun 1920s like stunts we get that wonderful you know uh slide down the tapestry that he does right, that right, two story right. like that that that's just one of those magnificent little fun uh you know uh bits of i i think is it, that might be one of the things you're calling silliness but i i i no, love no 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 that I, wasn't that's it? not that's not the silliness for me i'll get to the okay. silliness all right uh but uh but i just i i never quite bought him as the hood like i, I he just always seemed like a guy in tights and then they introduced about a thousand other guys who look exactly like him in tights and and uh it, it it really falls into chaos pretty quickly yeah yeah 
No, the silliness for me is uh, there's there are such antics between him and and his men and 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 I mean even from the beginning like some of just like the silly games that they're playing like just the drinking games and uh, just the way that they're the way that they're all acting with each other when they're. Um, uh, when they're all the merry men just kind of hanging out. And I get it. It's kind of guys hanging out and stuff. But then, and, and so some of that was silly, but then like there's the scene when they are all, um, okay, so Robin Hood and his men are holding a place, and I can't remember which place it is. And they're peeking over the the top of the gate, and they hear them saying, oh, go around to the side door. And they go, oh, let's go over to the side door. And so Robin Hood and his men go to the side door. And as the bad guy's men start coming through the side door, Robin Hood bops them each on the head, <laughs> and his men toss him into the well. And it's a very shallow well, because all their legs stick out. And they keep <laughs> doing this. But, and eventually, you have like, you know, 50 pairs of legs sticking out of this well. And I was like, this is like Looney Tunes. I mean, it was so bananas, silly. I was really surprised that that's where we kind of ended up going with some of these scenes. Like, they took them to, to be just so silly and campy and, and kind of fun, which is fine. But then, like, there's that scene where he, like, jabs a dagger into the top of somebody's head. And then the way that he kills, um, uh, was it the Sir Guy of Gisborne? Is that yeah. the one who he, like, strangles and wraps around the, the big column and, like, cracks his back? Yeah, that was a him? tough like, one. It's like, sheesh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. The the just the the scope of violence uh, in this movie, I did not e- expect this sort of simulated violence, and that strangling I thought was was particularly uh, you know in in the context of this film gruesome, um, and I, I it surprised me because of what I know of later Robin Hoods that you know it, it that sort of experience of Robin Hood seems so uh, modern for lack of a of better word, right? I mean, I, I feel like we get much more of that in the, the later versions of Robin Hood where we actually see some of the the gritty, uh, the grittiness that we're going to be talking about moving forward and, and much more of that sort of realistic violence. And to see it played out here in this character that otherwise is celebrated as a character, you know, enjoying feats of daring do uh, seemed out of context for me. That that for me was the kind of the strangeness of the story is it would it would go from kind of some really silly antics to some really kind of strong violent moments. So you know it, you know no censors obviously at the time, and so they were able to kind of do that without as much worry. But still, I don't know. It was a little strange for me, and um, I mean it didn't kill the movie or anything for me, but um, it was just a note that I had that uh, that did pull me out. Um, but yeah, you know, going back to Douglas Fairbanks, I will say the thing that I do like about him is that he works really well in these epics. Like, you know, he, he feels like a swashbuckler, like the way that he moves, the way that he, you know, dances so, so lightly across the top edge of the wall before jumping onto that big, um, the tapestry and sliding down, as you said, or, or, you know, scrambling up, uh, the chain in the gate so that he can get up, uh, inside. Like he does that so well and he just looks so natural with it. So I do like those elements of Doug, Douglas Fairbanks, but I do think that, yeah, just as kind of that Robin Hood, I just felt like there were elements of him that were just, I don't know, it just, it kind of became a little, uh, stale after a point, you know? I, uh, okay. Question outside the movie. How did you, what version did you watch? I watched the version that is on Amazon and it is two hours, straight up uh, two hours. Okay. It's the, it's the, that's the frame stretched version, right? That's been normalized across the thing. So it's not super fast in, in most places. Yeah. It all looked relatively normal speed. Correct. So as it was released, my understanding is that the, the finished, time was was 10 minutes shorter than that so when they normalize the speed it ended up being 10 minutes longer i just i i found varying times i found yeah. uh, 127 minutes i also found um 143 minutes I- interesting well the version yeah. i think on itunes was 212 and that's hmm. you know, what is that 130 132 132 minutes yeah. and uh and so i was frustrated by that and thank god for public domain i went on to youtube and i watched it 
at I, I watched the first half hour of it, and then I went to YouTube and I watched it at at one hundred and twenty five percent, right? Uh, with hmm. ramped up, and that took it down to uh, one hundred five. So even a little bit faster than originally released, but it felt much more like the tone, like the speed of movement fit the tone of what was originally released. Hmm. And I and so I say all that because I get the feeling that the way I watched the movie fit much more of the swashbuckling uh, Douglas Fairbanks than uh, than even reality <laughs> would have done it. Like he felt like this this fairy tale character that uh, um, that you know Robin Hood, the fairy tale character that uh, um, and and so there was there's a part of that uh, that I think helped me be even more of an apologist for um some of the silliness uh because it was all moving like a like an old movie like a silent yeah, film yeah, yeah. like it was being hand cranked well and it's funny cuz i when you're looking at silent films i think a lot of the times uh, it really does boil down to presentation and how you are looking at the film yeah. i was watching that like i said the version on amazon and it has a bunch of public domain music as the background and it worked for a little while. And then all of a sudden, it's like I realize I'm listening to like the Maple Leaf Rag while I'm watching Robin Hood. And I'm like, what? This is like bananas music to be playing with this. And I didn't want to listen to it silent. I had a film teacher in uh, in college who refused to play any silent film with sound because he said, unless it was music that they were playing at the time, then we're not playing it. And so we watched all of the silent films in in my film history class silently and i swear it put me to sleep every time is so like you're just staring at this in dead silence it was awful that's that's horrific i uh usually will default to just putting on the wall well what i did and actually what i found it actually worked really well is i put on other robin hood soundtracks I didn't Everything want to put on. I didn't want to put on the Kevin Costner one, but I did put on um, the uh, uh, the Ridley Scott version um, the, that Mark Streitenfeld did. Yeah, and uh, the score it was just it gave nice mood music. It doesn't have like strong themes or anything. It was just nice mood music that actually worked really nicely for me. So that's how I finished. Ended up watching it, but it is funny. Silent films. There is a context. You know, the frame rates kind of were there was this variance in them, and then the music. And so all of these different things. And so it does affect how you uh, receive a film. Yeah, I will absolutely. definitely agree to that. Let's let's talk a, a little bit, just a little bit more about Robin Hood. What's your what is your memory of Robin Hood and how well does this movie fit into that? My Rob, Robin Hood experiences as a kid, I think a lot of them and I think a lot of people our age are probably going to say this stem from the 1973 Disney animated version. Mm-hmm. I think so many versions um, of Robin Hood. I mean, I think it pulled from a lot of them. And so it had a lot of those. And so as I go back and watch these other ones, I see, OK, well, they're all kind of in there. Um, I uh, and I'm sure I had other like Robin Hood books and stuff when I was a kid. I mean, I'm sure it's just one of those characters that you know of. You know, he steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Eventually, I also watched um, uh, Time Bandits and John Cleese's Robin Hood became possibly my favorite Robin Hood. It's <laughs> just jolly good. And uh, jolly so I don't know. I. <laughs> I I really I I think Robin Hood's a really interesting character and I I enjoy these types of characters that are kind of in this space of public domain where people can kind of play with them and play with their interpretations. I think it's great. I there were elements here that I think um they hit pretty well. I liked the way that uh that he saw the injustices and I liked his I I will say that one of my biggest struggles was um his connection to Maid Marian or Lady Marian, as she is in this film, um, the whole, you know, when, when the, he, he's not connected to any woman at the, before they all go off to the, to the, uh, the crusades, King Richard is trying to get him to hook up with a woman. And he's just like, I'm a feared of women. I was like, <laughs> give me <laughs> wow. a break. Wow. Yeah. That was a little bit of a, a, a jump back to 1922 hearing that. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the courtship with Lady Marion was a little awkward. I ended up liking their relationship, but I, I found it to be um, a rough start 
for me. And a long start. That whole sequence yeah. of the, the early, you know, royal dating games was significant <laughs> part of the first hour of the film. And and I I just have to talk it through one or two of these. So this is after the joust, and they're all sitting down, and they're playing their little drinking games. Had you ever seen the booze tug-of-war portrayed on film? <laughs> Uh, I've never seen it on film, but we do that all the time at our house. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know that's, how you that's haven't heard of it before. more telling than I would have expected. No, it, the, <laughs> the whole idea here is that each of the participants is holding on to the, the stem of a giant goblet that is full of the booze. And somebody's I, – I wasn't clear. There's somebody behind each one of the participants with a stick hovering over their forehead. And you're playing tug-of-war with your arms, and I guess you lose. Like you're trying to get the goblet to your mouth, yeah, and you, so you lose drink, if you right. lean forward, and if yeah, well, your you head touches the stick. Forward. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. I I was under the impression that it was a knife, <laughs> not okay. a stick, I, and that I you would tell. slice I, your forehead if uh, if you got pulled forward. So but. they take it very seriously. <laughs> yeah. Their boo- boozy tug of war. That was something I never. I mean, this is this this ain't no beer pong, people. It's yeah, it's it's uh, early uh, uh, arm wrestling or something. I don't know. <laughs> and they're very physical with one another. Do you notice this? People are restraining other people all the time, left and right. They seem to be having a good time. And suddenly there's a gang of people restraining another person for, for yes. reasons I could not tell. <laughs> it was. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those elements do feel very silent film. Like it yeah. feels like big acting uh, very theatrical, uh, just the way that they were bringing those things in. Just it felt like they were still having fun with the the um, the new format, but it still felt um, more theatrical than cinematic. So th- this first forty minutes, I think, by by my gauge, is the the building up to um, you know, the leaving on the crusades. And then we get this experience of, um, you know, of, of John, the, the, you know, the regent now, uh, who has taken over for Richard the Lionhearted while he's off on his crusades and things fall apart under John. And so what I was saying earlier about how my experience with Robin Hood usually picks up Right about then, right when Robin Hood comes back from the Crusades, as those of us of a certain age, you know, our central sort of experience of a modern Robin Hood is Costner's and they're coming back from the Crusades and then they experience what it's like to return. We get so much of the story before that in this movie. uh, And I wonder your uh, opinion on how well that was needed. Yeah, it is a lot of um, backstory kind of building up to a point where we actually get Robin Hood because you're right. I mean, 40 minutes of the backstory leading up to them leaving for the Crusades. Then we have probably 20 minutes of Crusades and then, you know, and, you know, John ruining England and them sending a message to to uh, Robin or not. What was his his name is not secret name robert robert of uh i'm blanking on it now oh or the um, earl of huntingdon earl of huntington yeah huntington huntington yeah right so so he gets a message and then it's this thing about flying you know flying a dove back with his message and all that sort of stuff and then getting taken prisoner i mean that went on for another probably i don't know 25 minutes or so before he actually escapes and makes it back to to England where he can become Robin Hood. I mean it's a it's a hefty chunk of time. We're well over the hour mark before he's Robin Hood and uh starts helping people. So so does that work for you? I mean is that a thing or did you find yourself just getting antsy and ready to get to Robin Hood? Was the was the origin story part of value? It was because I I mean and, and I think your point is actually a valid one because I don't feel like I have often seen so much of his backstory. I think most people um, they they start when he either comes back to England and we're just starting with him arriving and or and just seeing kind of the devastation, or he's already there. Oh, and this is just a side note: another Robin Hood version that I grew up on is the Daffy Duck version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which I love. Um, but yeah, he but he's he's there already, and he's just kind of already this this 
you know, myth out in the woods who's robbing from the rich and stealing from the poor. Um, or like the Kevin Costner one where it starts and he's already on the Crusades and he's coming back. Yes. Um, I have never, I, I feel like this is probably the first time I've seen this much backstory in the Robin Hood story. And so to that end, I did find it actually to be interesting and I liked the setup and I liked the way that they gave it to us. It's slow and that's, I think, the the downside. But, and, and it's weird because it's the downside that it's slow, but it's also the fact that it's a silent film becomes an upside in that case because I end up just kind of taking all of that for what it is and saying, well, this is a film from 1922. This is how they told these stories. If they told it, this story today this way, I think it would be, they'd really have to find a way to amp it up a little bit because it's right. a, it's it really kind of lingers a little too long on, on the uh, departure. That's why you put Taron Edgerton in it. <laughs> right. Um, all right. I think, so we, I think my understanding is the Russell Crowe version. We're going to have more of this backstory. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I. So we come back and, you know, this is after that big transition. And, and I have to say, you know, he tried to get they got the message with the birds and we get some hot bird on bird attack action in the aerial battle. That was nuts. Uh, which reminded me. Uh, a little bit of our our um, uh, journey to the volcano in uh, Stromboli. Stromboli, the journey with to the, the volcano rabbit, so in with Stromboli the, uh, with the yeah the rabbit and the ferret. That was yeah, holy cow! Uh, the, this animal animal thing. Mm-hmm. You start to see why they maybe put some regulation around that. <laughs> right. Anyhow, uh, so now we meet Robin Hood, and we've already mentioned this is kind of where things fall apart, and yet this is also central to our, as we alluded to earlier, central to our human enjoyment of what Robin Hood represents, uh, which is the idea of getting back at those who have wronged us and doing so in a way that 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 sort of publicly embarrasses them. How uh, what do you think of that? The the sort of gestalt of vengeance around Robin Hood here? Well, it, it's funny because I never thought so much that Robin Hood was all about vengeance so much as doing what's right. And I think there's a there's a fine line in that interpretation because stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, it, it you know, I mean, he's obviously taking, he's stealing from people, but he's he's doing it to help other people. But it in, I don't know, in my mind, it never was quite so violent. But I guess in context, obviously, there ends up being violence when you take it out of, you know, foxes and other animals in the Disney cartoon version. And, <laughs> and see, so, I see our central problem here. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it ends up. So I think the the violence, uh, the nature of the character, I think, is an interesting one. And I think that's for me, I think that's something I really like exploring about Robin Hood is the fact that he's basically decides, you know, the only way I can help society and help England is by turning my back on what the king says is the way it is and and turning into a criminal. I mean, it's like the first superhero, right? I mean, he's basically Batman. He's he's going to stop a corrupt society and do what he can to help those who need it. It's actually a really interesting kind of angle to kind of take and look at what this guy is. And and I think if you look at it that way and you look at the these bards and people who were writing these songs and stories about Robin Hood back in the 13 and 1400s, very much so. I think it was something for people to latch onto like a superhero. Well, it, yeah, I mean this is the this is the class right it's this is the battle of the classes here of uh, you know of hundreds of years of uh, british history right centrally sort of experiencing british history here through this through robin hood a centrally british character and uh, the idea that we have uh, you know, we have royalty and and these vested landowners who have wronged the people. Robin Hood becomes a vessel for the people who have been wronged. And that's really important. I mean, that's it doesn't necessarily have to be. And as we've seen so many times, it doesn't have to be a particularly violent story to be a story of vengeance, right, of just getting back at those who have wronged us and how good that feels to have that experience publicized in some way. And uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that giving back to the to the poor it's not just about doing right it's about giving resources of those we we don't like and don't trust to ourselves right to the people 
by way of this voice of Robin Hood, uh, and and that is its own publicity, right? Did you hear the story of maybe he'll come to our village, maybe he'll come to our to our farm, maybe we'll end up seeing some of these riches that have been taken by way of taxation illegally, and 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 that's the, I mean, to me, that's the story of Robin Hood, and that's that's what makes you know Robin Hood such a, a fantastic story today because. It's still happening today, and that's the kind of story we we love to to read. Well, and especially one where they create such indelible characters like Robin Hood, like, um, you know, King, well, King John, King Richard, both of them. Well, you the have made yeah, The Sheriff of Nottingham, absolutely. The, the Merry Men, Maid Marian, um, uh, Little John, and Friar Tuck. Like, all of these characters are such, like, indelible elements of the story that kind of almost become archetypes within the story yeah. that that give reason for it to continue being told because they each have their part and they each help this story um, kind of blossom in lots of interesting ways. So I think it's just a really interesting story that, um, yeah, I, and it's, I mean, obviously it's one that has been evolving for hundreds of years. So let it continue evolving and let filmmakers kind of continue to explore with it. You want to talk a little bit about getting it made? This is a film that Douglas Fairbanks was trying to figure out what he wanted to do um, in his career. And, you know, it was, I don't know how early this was in his career. He had been acting for for quite a while um, already through the through the teens of uh, silent cinema, and uh, but still had some some big films to come after this, like The Thief of Baghdad, and um, I think after a few years after this, I think he would do The Iron Mask again with uh, Alan Dwan at the helm, and. But but he was trying to decide what he wanted to do, and he was either going to do the Virginian, an adaptation of the uh, the book of that story by Owen Wister, or he was going to do Monsieur, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Bo- Beaucaire, is that how you say it? Monsieur Beaucaire um, uh, by Booth, Booth Tarkington. And, uh, I'll go with had, that. Yeah, he had optioned the film rights to both of those, um, and he also had done The Mark of Zorro a few years earlier, 1920, and he thought that maybe he would do a sequel to that. But, and I'm not exactly sure how this story fell into, uh, fell into his lap, but, um, I don't know. It, it, I just think that it was, it was part of his own production company, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Pictures Corporation and part of our United Artists distributed. And of course, um, he was one of the founding members of United Artists, him, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith. And, uh, yeah, I think it was just one of those things where he just kind of latched onto this instead of those other projects and, uh, took off with it. And, and I mean, he he does work in in context of the role because of that swashbuckling nature that he has. So I think to that end, I think he put together a good team here. Alan Dwan as the director, who I mean, he is a guy who ended up directing like five hundred plus movies, something like that. Just crazy how many films he directed, and starting in the um, uh, like early teens. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of was a B director but, and directed tons of stuff, but this was one of his biggest. And I think it's just because of the story. It just turned into something that, that uh, all of the pieces fell into place. He was the right director. Douglas Fairbanks was the right actor. They had the right script. And uh, there it is. This Douglas Fairbanks. I- I'm enamored by him now more than ever, not just because of this movie, but because Andy... He's a Colorado dude. <laughs> we right? like those. That's right. He was born in Ullman, Colorado, small town. He was in Summerstock at Elitch's, Andy. Elitch's, the, the Elitch Gardens. Uh, we, Amusement we were, Park, yeah. We were there, man. I know. That they was, were celebrating uh, this, their 100th anniversary when we were in college. Do you remember? That, yeah. I Actually, I'm not sure it's still there anymore. Is it gone? They moved... Elitch's to downtown Denver from its original location. I don't think any of the old Elitch's exists in its place anymore. They, although I know they ported over some of the rides. Well, that is crushing because I have such fond memories of Elitch's, but now I have fond memories of me 
and you and Douglas Fairbanks hanging out at Elitch's in Summerstock a hundred years ago. <laughs> that is cool. That's a really fun it find. Is very, very cool. Uh, you know, the you mentioned the archetypes of these characters, and and uh, I think there are some in here that are particularly strong. I yeah, I wasn't as as crazy about uh, uh, you know Marion, but uh, I have to call out little john the squire little john played by alan hale uh he was i I thought he was terrific oh yeah absolutely he was great uh so much so that he was asked to reprise his role in the 1938 the adventures of robin hood when errol flynn took on the mantle of robin hood and then in rogues of sherwood forest 1950 he was asked again to play the character because people loved him as little john so much and and i don't know if this is still true but at the time the notes were written he it was the longest period for any actor to appear in the same role in film history well it's amazing and i think actually serves the character of little john right i mean you sort of need a, a a more mature sort of older guy in that role i think it it actually works to watch him age with the character uh uh over the course of these decades uh be curious to see the interpretations of these characters in some some of the other films coming up yeah and i am a little bummed now that rogues of sherwood forest uh, did not end up making the cut of of the films that we're going to be talking about but we will at least get to look at him again in the adventures of robin hood 1938 who else stood out for you in the uh we'll call them the archetypes well uh, you know, I, I you just I, I have to call this out about uh, Maid Marian or Lady Marian. Um, Enid Bennett played her, but her name is Lady Marian. Lady Marian Fitzwalter. <laughs> I know. Where does no, where does that come no from? No offense to any Fitzwalters <laughs> out there, but I just did not expect that as her last name when they called it out. Uh, you know, Marian Fitzwalter. <laughs> What do you get it the totally feeling maybe that, that they they struggled to get it written and maybe had some sort of a contest? Maybe it was the early <laughs> patrons who said, you know, hey, I'll donate uh, some money if if, if you'll you put this name, name, in. <laughs> name, put my kid's name in so the funny. film. Yeah, I, I, that, that was that, that took me out of the movie more than any of the other silliness. <laughs> It was just such a strange name to bring in there. You know, we're we're uh, we're laughing about it, and that's not just to hear ourselves laugh. It just sounds very strange, and I'm sure someone's going to write us and tell us, "Well, Fitzwalter is one of the oldest names in Britain," and right. uh, and and that's fine too. It still doesn't sound right. So, well, and it's funny because I've I, you know kind of I read through the Wikipedia um, breakdown of Robin Hood and all the myths of Robin Hood and just kind of all the different various stories, and it was pretty interesting to kind of get a, a sense of of him and the characters and everything. And Marion is always identified simply as Maid Marion. Yes, there's no reference ever to Marion Fitzwalter. So I just, I can't believe that that's actually (laughs) something that uh, is canon. I just, I feel like somebody threw that in as a joke. (laughs) In our defense, a little live research. The name, surname of Fitzwalter was a baptismal name, son of Walter. The Norman French word Fitz signifies son and was derived from the Latin philius. The old spelling is usually fizz, and the application of it has been of it has been to denote the many natural sons of royalty. The personal name was introduced into England in the reign of the Confessor. Uh, it is listed oh as a tenant in the Doomsday Book of 1086. Edmund Phileas Walter of the country of Cambridgeshire in 1273. This name goes back. So let's just say there may have been somebody reading the Doomsday Book of 1086 and found a Fitzwalter <laughs> and thought Marion would be great with it. But it That's still sounds right. weird. I stand by it, it sounding weird. Yeah. With all due um, respect to the Fitzwalters of exactly. podcast audiences. <laughs> um, I, I have to uh, call out to Wallace Beery, who plays King Richard the Lionhearted in this version. Uh, Wallace Beery is one of those actors who's just got a great face. I actually think that he works really well as uh, King Richard the Lionhearted. And actually, obviously, the people uh, around him did as well because he ended up coming back a few years later to play the same character in the film 
Richard the Lionhearted. So obviously he worked well for the role. But Wallace Beery, he's one of those actors that you see in, uh, I mean, he's just been in lots of different films. And the, I'm trying to remember the one that uh, stands out to me. He was in Buster Keaton's uh, The Three Ages, which was kind of the Buster Keaton's spoof version of D.W. Griffith's uh, Intolerance. And then uh, he was in uh, he was in The Champ with Jackie Cooper, which is, I think, maybe one of the more uh, famous roles of his. And he was in Dinner at Eight. And uh, I guess there's another one that is a, a very familiar one that stood out to me as a Grand Hotel. He was in that one. And um, yeah, he's just he's a face that I think works really well in context of these old films. So I, I he was the other one that I wanted to call out. Well, I'm glad you called him out. But I think in this film, when I think about Wallace Beery, all I can think about is that jester that's always mm. with him. And uh, did he end up doing anything special with his career? Because if not, that is a sore misuse of resources. You know, I'm glad you brought the jester up. So this is something that I thought was actually pretty interesting. We have a moment in this film where uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne goes to assassinate King Richard. And this is when they're out on the on the Crusades. And he sneaks into his tent and he stabs him to death. And then he rides back to England to tell um, Prince John that he had killed him. As it turns out... It was the the jester who was sleeping in King Richard's bed. And King Richard came into his room shortly afterward and pulled back the covers and saw that the jester was there. And it's just like, ah, you played the king once too many, my dear friend, or whatever. And so we talked about King Richard very briefly when we were looking at The Lion in Winter. Um, that was the character that is uh, is gay. He was in a, in a homosexual relationship with... Uh, Tim, uh, whose character was that? Tim Timothy the, Dalton's character yeah, was the, the one French, um, yeah, the French prince, yeah, right. Prince. And uh, and Anthony Hopkins was King or Prince Richard at the time, and it was uh, it, so that was an interesting theory that people have had about Richard is that he had homosexual tendencies. And and it's it's not something that I really ever thought about before. But then the fact that they had the jester in his bed, and I was like, oh, that was really interesting. I wonder if the filmmakers and the storytellers here were throwing that in as just kind of a hint as to this idea that uh, King Richard the Lionhearted might have uh, been gay or kind of closeted. It was an interesting thing. I mean, I'm not sure, but, it, you know, there were censors at the time, so it's possible. Well, y- you have to ask, what was he doing in bed, in the king's bed, right? Right. That's, you don't throw that in accidentally. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting thing to kind of throw in. And for me, in a 1922 film, an interesting thing to like be put forth as something to think about. A few other notes, Pete, about the cast before we move forward. Just a couple notes regarding the background players. This was a very expensive film. And, you know, in the silent days, they couldn't just generate characters with CG or use cardboard cutouts. They could use cardboard cutouts, but I don't think they were. They were just hiring people. They had, at several points throughout the film, as many as 1,200 extras on set to fill these scenes. And uh, which is 1100 of them were dressed as Robin Hood at one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, It's like the three amigos. Right. Amigos, amigos, amigos. (laughs) Amigos, amigos, amigos. Well, it is interesting to note just how strong everybody was in the movie. This was a movie that that really celebrates virility uh, in and masculinity. They threw each other a lot uh, to the point where obviously they. They weren't there. There was one point where Robin Hood picks the guy up over his head and throws him off a balcony. Yeah. And uh, that that seemed uh, potentially out of physical character. I, I don't know how strong a man uh, Douglas Fairbanks actually was, but that felt like it was out of character. Well, there were a number of moments throughout the film that I was like, they were doing things that seemed completely... Um, just illogical yeah. as far as physics were concerned. Like little John, he picks up a guy when they're out in the forest and he just, he throws him into a tree, guy, like all the way up into, the, like, <laughs> not just like into a tree next to him, but like up high in the tree. Yes, I'm like, yeah, literally up into a tree. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's brilliant. Like what are, what is going on here? 
No, no law of physics with this film. We've talked about Arthur Edison before, uh, central figure in the uh, early days of formalizing cinematography as a profession. And, uh, you know, the camera work, I think, is able camera work for a 1922 film. And, uh, you know, insofar as they stick it up on sticks and run the camera, it felt very, um, um, you know, it felt about as proscenium as the setting was. Yeah, I think that's uh, my sense of the silent uh, film sets is that, uh, you know, there wasn't anything that stood out as fun play. I mean, that was one thing with silent film is you were allowed to move your camera and put them in different places and do things that were a little more experimental. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of that here. It felt pretty straightforward. I will say that the uh, the structure that they built, the castle and the nearly full size village of Nottingham uh, was uh, extensive. Yeah, that's something that, I mean, and these sets were so big at the time, what they would do is they would build these sets outdoors. I mean, they they are interior scenes, like the inside of the castle, but it's so big, this banquet hall, that it's basically an open air set because you can't, they couldn't have, there wasn't a space where they could do that. And so they would do this just out in open space. And they made this huge set, which at the time was one of the largest sets built for silent films. And uh, I think that that's just something that they would do to kind of create these worlds. And, you know, I respect that. I mean, obviously, it costs a lot of money and they, they put a lot of time and energy into it. But I think that in the case of creating the world, they did some great world building with that. Well, in the investment by Fairbanks and Pickford, they I mean, they bought this ranch, as I understand it, to to make that work. It was essentially their own studio. Right. I mean, that's, did you read that? Uh, I didn't. That but uh, but I do know that. I mean, it was his production company that was behind this. So I wouldn't be surprised at all yeah. that that's exactly how they did it. Substantial. You know, I just want to go before we uh, push on. I do want to jump back to music. Again, real quick. So what I found as I was reading about this, I, I found that it was actually pretty interesting that, uh, well, a couple things. Um, so Sid Grauman, who had the uh, the theaters out in L.A., um, he had just built his Egyptian theater. And he actually, um, he thought of this idea of having this big gala premiere. And this movie apparently was the first one to have a big gala premiere. Sid Grauman kind of put this whole thing together. And what's interesting is that... Um, Victor Schertzinger was hired to write the music uh, for this film by Fairbanks and wrote an actual original score for the film, which I, you know, unfortunately, like I said, I was listening to ragtime and, and just stuff that didn't fit at all. I would love to hear what the score sounded like, but uh, it's not, I, I it, it didn't play on what I was watching. So I'd love to actually hear what it sounded like. What I did find interesting, which I think is probably a first, Sid Grauman actually wrote a song with Victor Schertzinger called Just an Old Love Song um, that uh, tied into the music and they used it to promote the picture. And again, I couldn't find that song either. But how interesting is that, that like the theater owner collaborated with the composer to put together music that they would use to help market the movie? It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. yeah I, I'd love, I to, wonder if I'd we love can to see get, people doing that these days. Yeah. Harkins, AMC. I'm right. sure they would love to. The CEOs would love to get in there and start. <laughs> start Finally, I can get right. back to my lyricist career I've always been wanting to do. <laughs> I just have always wanted to push more buttons. <laughs> what you're listening to is a sponsored message. This will be removed from the show for subscribers in Patreon. That's right. Patrons hear no ads. That's just one perk of supporting The Next Reel at thenextreel.com slash Patreon. Wait, you want more? How about early access to the show before the rest of the world? How about an online community dedicated to talking movies with channels just for members? Or how about this? You can sleep soundly knowing that you've pledged to support the podcasting careers of a team of dedicated movie lovers eager to grow the show, this community, and to build more resources for learning about great movies. Support the show at thenextreel.com slash Patreon. How to do it award season, Andy? 
This was a period of time where there just weren't that many awards yet. There was still this, uh, there were no Academy Awards. It was, you know, a new medium. And so just people hadn't kind of adapted, like, let's give awards to these crazy movies. It wasn't something that was happening much. However, it did win one award, the Photoplay Awards. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks (laughs) got the Medal of Honor. I think that's fantastic that that's what they give out. That's so funny. It's like, did that come up right after Best Diorama Award? <laughs> it's a yeah. moving box. Right, right. Yeah, it's so funny that uh, that's what they gave out. But that's, that's and beautiful. that's the only award that this film is uh, is listed for having received. Uh, and too bad, but we should say Douglas Fairbanks was a, a principal founder of the Motion Picture Association. So maybe uh, he ended up doing it so he could give himself an award later. <laughs> right. Uh, how to do at the box office do we have any numbers you know the records are a bit hazy as to the final budget for for ellen dwan's take on robin hood according to some sources the budget was about nine hundred thirty thousand dollars. others say it was the highest budgeted film at the time about 1.5 million dollars according to jeffrey vance who's the author of the biography douglas fairbanks he apparently found definitive figures that do show the final film cost for production, $930,042.78. It is very specific. So, so it's got to be right. I, right. I don't disbelieve him, but I don't want to disbelieve that it was the highest, highest budgeted film at the time. Knowing, as we've discussed so many times, knowing the studios spend money on prints and advertising, I'm going to take Vance's number as the production budget, as he said, and the remaining approximately $570,000 as prints and advertising costs, giving us that total of about $1.5 million, which is about $22.8 million in today's dollars. Still pretty cheap for a big action-adventure sort of film. The movie was released October 18th, 1922, and it was received well. In fact, many today see this as Dwan's masterpiece, even though, as I mentioned earlier, he directed over 500 films all the way up into the 60s. And many say that this film is the film, as we've been discussing, that sets the mark for subsequent Robin Hood films. The movie's gross is a bit squiffy as well, but from what I could tell, it made about $5.5 million at the box office, which is about $83 million in today's dollars. All told, that gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $420,000. I just learned a new word, Andy. Do you know what it is? Squiffy. That's the one. I am really <laughs> impressed. I had to look that right up. Isn't it a great word? <laughs> you know what uh, isn't squiffy is probably $100 of that production cost went to the, the tapestry fall. You know how they did that? We didn't even say. Uh, how they put a two-story playground slide underneath the tapestry, so he let go, was sliding on top of the tapestry, but under him, hidden under the tapestry, was a slide. Fancy wow. that, right? Hundred bucks. I feel like he'd still get a rug burn. Yeah, no, down. he doesn't. <laughs> nobody comes out uh, looking good after a fall like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a really fun way to open this series, Andy. I I actually liked it, and I. I I don't know. I don't know that we're too far off. I think you you accused me of liking the movie more than you did. Uh, and so I'm very curious how it's going to stand up in our rankings. Yeah, I am, too. This will be an interesting one to see because it's it's a film that I enjoyed. It's not something that uh, I would return to often. You know, I, I found some interesting elements to it. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, OK, I've seen it. I can check that off the list and not have to come back to it. I say we dig in and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. Uh, If you swipe over in your show notes and you click on or tap on or, you know, indicate your preference to go to this this location on the Internet, the word (laughs) flickchart... Wow. (laughs) I'm very thorough tonight. Uh, You'll be taken straight to this movie, and you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours. All right. First up, we have Robin Hood. Or did you know, Pete, this is just a random aside, that there is debate if this film is called Robin Hood or if it is called Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood? (laughs) I wonder who's debating it, Andy? (laughs) 
there are uh, Wikipedia listed as Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood. The the author that I mentioned who wrote the biography on Douglas Fairbanks, he calls it Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood. Well, it's bananas. I think to me. I'll bet Douglas Fairbanks also calls it Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Douglas Fairbanks does. Anyway, first up we have Robin Hood or Murder on the Orient Express, 1974. Oh, I'm going to go with Murder. Me too. Robin Hood or For Whom the Bell Tolls. I think probably For Whom the Bell Tolls. I, uh, it's kind of hitting the point where I'm like, I'd rather watch Robin Hood. Yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a line for me, too. All right. So are we going to rock, paper, scissors this one? God, if, if I cared. Okay. I just like, it. I think about For Whom the Bell Tolls and I'm like... I don't know. I it, it grows lesser and lesser in my mind over time. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I'm. You know what? I'm going to give it to you. I'm not even going to fight it. All right. That's because I sold it so well. You did. Robin Hood or Russian Dolls. Uh, Russian Dolls. Our, our favorite end to it wasn't the second film of. Uh, yeah, I'll take Russian Dolls. Robin Hood or the Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Yeah, same for me. Robin Hood or Red Belt? Red Belt. <laughs> I'll give you Red Belt. <laughs> Robin Hood. Look at this awful, awful picture of oh, Douglas Fairbanks. It's like he's a red devil. What the hell? You know, he, Robin looks, Hood. Like, he looks like Mel Brooks. A young <laughs> Mel Brooks. <laughs> I don't know. It looks something. I don't know. Something's going on. Robin Hood or The Sandlot? Sandlot. Totally The Sandlot. Yeah, no question. Robin Hood or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Go with Munchausen, please. Going with Munchausen. Robin Hood or Christmas in July. I liked Christmas in July. That was sweet. I'd rather watch that. All right. Me too. Robin Hood or La Femme Nikita. Uh, very much Nikita. Yes, very much Nikita. Well, that lands Robin Hood or Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood in spot 308 on our chart. 308 out of 410, which is about a 25%. Well, that's not very good. <laughs> I and, and we didn't have to fight over it very much. So I think we actually we probably agree uh, on this movie. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, how to do on your own chart? Uh, a little worse, actually. Um, and I think it's worse? just, it ends up falling to the rewatchability factor. You know, so many times I'm like, well, it's probably a better movie, but I'm not going to put it on before that other movie. It landed at 3457 out of 4168, which is about a 17% on my chart. Well, this landed at uh, 868 out of 1095 on my chart, which is a 21%. So yeah. uh, it, we're, we're right in the ballpark. But what does that mean for letterbox.com slash the next reel? If we go by the algorithm, that should be one star? I'm not, I'm not giving it that. What are you giving it? I am giving it, I'm giving it uh, two and a half stars, no like. Ugh, that feels better to me. I was nervous there that we had to go by the one star. It says one star, we go by the robots, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, because when I walked when I, I finished this thing, I, and I probably, that's where my enthusiasm come from. I, I finished this movie. I was like, well, that was a, a jolly good time. And, uh, even though I wasn't crazy about, you know, Fairbanks portrayal of Robin Hood, I do really like Robin Hood and I like what it stands for. And I like the fun plays we get to have in the class discussion. And so I was going to land right at a three star and, and be okay with that. And then we had this discussion and then the one star, and I just didn't know what to do. Mm. I panicked. So I am going to go three stars. Um, to like or not to like, though, I think I like that it. That is the question. I'm going to like it. Okay. Three stars and a like, Andy. Wow. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay that you have a three stars and a like, and it's low on your flick chart, because that's just the nature of things, yes. right? It's a, it life, is life in the big city. What does that mean for us now? Where do we go from here? Our next stop in the Robin Hood train. We are going to jump to 1938 and look at possibly one of the most iconic, uh, if not the most uh, popular versions of Robin Hood. It is uh, Errol Flynn's version from 1938, The Adventures of Robin Hood. That's the one right there, right? It is one that people often uh, talk about as being Robin Hood. And I think... Uh, a lot of it is just the swashbuckling nature of it. I think it's the technicolor. A lot of those things, I think, work in context of selling the story of Robin Hood. 
Well, I am. Uh, I'm excited about it. That is next in our series. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't uh, had a chance to check out the Marvel Movie Minute, we just uh, wrapped last month, season one of the Marvel Movie Minute with 2009's Iron Man. It was great fun, all 126 minutes of it. And uh, we're we're gearing up for a 2020 release of The Hulk. So this is a great time. Take a few months while we're not doing a new Marvel Movie Minute as we round out the end of the year to go back and listen to Iron Man. You should. You should give it a shot. It's fantastic. A lot of fun talking about that movie. And in context of Spider-Man Far From Home, it's even more relevant to go back and listen to it. And how. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah, they sometimes do, and I think they they, they may have come through. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, where'd you Where'd you land? I went low. I went down to low. one star. Oh, dark days in the Amazon, mm. the bowels, the depths of the Amazon. Indeed, uh, one star by NN, who says, "Depends what you're interested in." I was just curious and clicked on this film. I didn't watch it through, but it's a very old film that is what it says. Silent. Made without any voice recordings. Good to watch if you're looking into the historical aspects of movies, but was a bit boring for me. A bit boring. Well, maybe Lucy uh, can can help with uh, her guidance in this two-star review. Great video. Horrid music. Mm. Mm. She's a fan of yours, Andy. Yeah. This video was of very good quality. And Douglas Fairbanks is always incredible. The story is so different than most modern versions of Robin Hood, it was very interesting to follow. However, a happy honky-tonk piano played the same tunes throughout the entire movie. When the mood should have been somber or tense or melancholy, the happy honky-tonk piano would not shut up. It really ruined the experience. (laughs) It was that happy honky-tonk piano, Andy. It was. That's what it was, Pete. If uh, only I could have put it into such uh, such words as she. I hope old Errol Flynn includes a happy honky-tonk piano somewhere in his rendition of Robin Hood. <laughs> I know Kevin Costner did. <laughs> we're going to have to really listen for that. We'll, we'll do happy honky-tonk piano call-outs. Mm, we're going to need the happy honky-tonk piano Robin Hood review. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 